Welcome to South Asia Chat. I'm your host, Dr. Imran Ahmed, a visiting research fellow here at ISAS. Today, we'll be speaking about the issue of recognizing the Taliban. Since seizing power in August, the Taliban have continued its momentum of international engagement speaking with delegations far and wide. But engaging with the Taliban presents numerous thorny ethical considerations and moral and political issues and challenges. At the same time, there are mounting concerns about the humanitarian and security situation in Afghanistan. And this situation further presents the international community with another set of difficult contentions. Here to help us think through some of these issues and other matters is Associate Professor Matthew Nelson from the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. Professor Matthew, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you very much. It's nice to be with you. I wanted to begin with a broad question. What sort of considerations go into one country officially recognizing another? That's a great question. Um, of course, in some sense, it's a legal question. Um, but I think like many of the really big legal questions, it's also a political question. Um, so legally, states generally recognize other states, you know, not other governments. Uh, so long as the, the state in question has uh, an identifiable population, uh, usually things like a, a relatively clear territorial boundary and, you know, some type of government, some type of government that controls the territory and can enter uh, in agreements with, with other governments. Um, so, for instance, like the state of North Korea would be recognized despite objections uh, regarding the North Korean government or a country like Myanmar or Sudan now um, would be recognized uh, despite objections about military coups. Um, but in, in Afghanistan, uh, we could see a strictly legal approach, but it's also true that the I think the diplomatic recognition of a Taliban government is, is harder. Uh, it's harder for a couple of reasons. First, um, I think many people know that many of the Taliban's government officials are still on UN sanctions lists. Um, and, and that just makes formal engagement with these state officials a lot more complicated um, because they're under sanction. Uh, second, uh, the Taliban oppose even rhetorically uh, many, actually most, of, of the world's human rights principles. Um, and, you know, most countries, Russia, China, and so on, they will claim to support international human rights. Um, but the, ta the Taliban doesn't necessarily even take that line. And, and furthermore, if the Taliban are not seen as what the UN Charter calls peace-loving, um, then their inclusion within sort of the UN Charter rubric just becomes a lot harder and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, recognition decisions ultimately are actually bilateral decisions. Uh, it's not up to the UN, it's up to each state on its own. So even if the UN hesitated, um, say Pakistan or China, uh, they could recognize the Taliban if they wanted to. Uh, but again, I think it's political. Um, you know, so far, states, including Pakistan and, and China, um, seem to think that going it alone in terms of recognition is uh, risky. It would leave them sort of diplomatically exposed. And so they're, they're hesitating. Um, the, the basic legalities are one thing, but this diplomatic hesitation, I think, is the real, the real nub of, of the answer. Well, thank you very much for explaining the complexity of that situation. I, I wanted to now uh, ask a historical question. 
In the 1990s, only three countries recognized the Taliban, namely Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. What factors in, in that situation, in that time period, uh, led to these countries uh, to formal recognition? You're right. This is a, a sort of a historical question. Um, you know, the Taliban really emerged as a sort of separate and sort of separately identifiable force after uh, the so-called anti-Soviet jihad in, in Afghanistan. Um, now, you'll remember that that, that anti-Soviet uh, project in, in Afghanistan was funded by the U.S., um, which was concerned about the spread of communism in Afghanistan. But it was also funded um, by Saudi Arabia and, and the Emirates and so on, which were also concerned, if you will, about the spread of communism, but really the spread of godless communism. Um, and, and basically all three of these countries, the U.S., the Saudis, the Emiratis, they all channeled lots of money to various groups of jihadis in, in Afghanistan to fight the Soviets. And most of that money went through uh, Pakistan's intelligence services, the Inter-Services Intelligence Directorate, or the ISI. Um, well, after the Soviets withdrew, um, various international jihadis, the Arabs, the Chechens, and so on, they, they went home to, to fight their jihad at home, or, or they focused on other things. But in Afghanistan, uh, several factions, factions emerged amongst the Afghan jihadis. Um, and, and fairly quickly, those Afghan jihadis sort of fell into a catastrophic civil war uh, with one another. Um, now, the key jihadi factions at that point uh, mostly involved sort of a university-educated, what we call an Islamist um, formation of, of different ethnic factions. So you'll have like a Tajik-led group um, known as the Jamiat Islami under a, a Tajik leader named uh, Burhanuddin Rabbani. Um, and then there was a breakaway group from that, a Pashtun group, a Pashtun ethnic group uh, known as Hizbi Islami, uh, led by this fellow Gulbuddin Hekmatyar. Now, after the Soviets left and then replaced or removed the last puppet regime of the Soviets, um, these factions, these ethnic factions of former jihadis fell on one another in a civil war. And it was that civil war context um, into which the, the Taliban actually emerged. Okay, And basically the Taliban took off took off after the ISI shifted its patronage from one of those factions, the Pashtun faction of, of Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, the Hizbi Islami, over to the Taliban. Um, and that was re really gave the Taliban its, the wind in its sail. And, and so that's the history. But as you, you asked, what, you know, what led Pakistan and the, the Saudis and the Emiratis to actually recognize the Taliban? Um, well, at that point, the, the Taliban had been supported by Pakistan for, for several years already um, and when they captured Kabul. Um, in, in 1996. And at that point, all three of these countries actually thought, oh, the Taliban have just brought an end to the civil war in, in Afghanistan. They're going to be peace loving. Um, they're going to want to settle down. Um, they're going to be compliant. After all, they had been working with funding from these countries for a long time. So they're going to be good Sunni Muslim allies. Now, this is all way before 9-11. Uh, this is in 1996. And so Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, and so on, they didn't seem to worry very much at that point about the Taliban's relationship with Al-Qaeda. Now, that came later, right? That came after 9-11. But, you know, in 1996, 1997, 1998, um, they're, they're seeing the Taliban as really bringing order to, to Afghanistan and, and likely to be a, a peace-loving um, sort of compliant neighbor in, in an environment where they're still concerned about Iran and, and, and the Taliban were Sunni allies. So that was what, that was the context.
thank you for laying out that historical dimension. Um, I, my next question, I, I wanted to to build on that. So there, there is this kind of relationship between the Taliban and, and these Muslim countries. Uh, so today we see a lot of pressure building within Pakistan, particularly from parties and voices from the religious right. Uh, is Pakistan likely to recognize the Taliban anytime soon? What about Saudi Arabia, uh, UAE, or perhaps other Muslim-majority countries? Right. Will they recognize a second time around? Um, it's a really good question. I, I think lots of people have said, you know, it's been 20 years and the world has changed in the last 20 years. So it is true that the Taliban takeover um, in Kabul definitely inspired lots of right-wing religious groups around the Muslim world. Absolutely. And in Pakistan, some of these groups actually celebrated, right? So an Islamist party, the, the Jamaat-e Islami, um, the party of Islam, if you will, um, and, and even a traditional uh, madrasa-based party, the, the Jamiat Ulama-e Islam, the party of the Islamic clerics, really. Um, they, they came out quite openly and, and celebrated the, the takeover in, in Kabul. Um, but at an official level in Pakistan, I think the outlook is a lot more cautious this time around. Um, actually, six months ago uh, on another podcast, I said, you know, Pakistan does not want a total Taliban takeover. <laughs> what, what Pakistan wants is a negotiated transition, uh, a transition away from the, the Afghan government led by President Ashraf Ghani, uh, which was a government with ties to the U.S. as, as well as India. And, and Pakistan wanted a transition away from that government um, to a new government that favored the Taliban um, without totally excluding other ethnic groups or other religious groups or other or, or women. Um, and I still think Pakistan would have preferred uh, a negotiated process leading to a, a more inclusive Taliban government. Um, now, of course, on the one hand, Pakistan is obviously thrilled that with the demise of Ghani's government, India is out of Afghanistan for the time being. But at the same time, you know, with, when it comes to recognition and so on, um, the Taliban have taken a really hardline approach. Their new cabinet um, is um, a hardline cabinet, not a moderate cabinet. They still maintain ties to other militant groups, Al-Qaeda and regional groups, including groups like uh, one called the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, uh, which threatens uh, China, right? A Uyghur movement. Um, and of course, groups like the so-called Pakistan Taliban, which threatens Pakistan itself. And so this is not an inclusive government in Pakistan. And I think the situation is pretty risky. Um, already inside Pakistan, uh, these so-called Pakistan Taliban have started to increase their attacks inside Pakistan. And in fact, when, when Pakistan told the Afghan Taliban uh, to do something about this, uh, because the Pakistan Taliban were sheltering inside Afghanistan, uh, the Afghan Taliban just told Pakistan that they should ask their own Pakistani clerics whether those clerics thought that the Pakistan Taliban's anti-state jihad was, quote, legitimate. <laughs> in other words, the Afghan Taliban did not address Pakistan's concerns. Um, so, you know, these anti-Pakistan groups, this Pakistan Taliban, um, they've also teamed up with groups in Balochistan, in Pakistan, that are upset with the Pakistani state. Um, and so the Pakistan Taliban and some of these Baloch resistance groups have actually teamed up in attacks against Chinese interests inside Pakistan. 
Now that is a serious risk for Pakistan um, because Pakistan really wants to develop closer ties with China. So a Taliban victory in Afghanistan comes with lots of problems for Pakistan. Um, and I think these problems are gonna be quite severe. Uh, lots of countries, Muslim countries around the world um, are worried that recognizing the Taliban will inspire anti-state militants at home. Um, and so most of them are taking this wait and see approach that, that we talked about. So if the Taliban managed to, as they say, honor their commitments uh, and prevent any export of jihad, then we might see some recognition from Pakistan or the Emirates or Saudi Arabia or China or others. Um, but so far, we just have to wait and see. Thank you so much. Uh, so I, I wanted to ask my ne next question, sort of looking at uh, sort of uh, the international community as, as a broad, so international bodies. We saw recently uh, a lot of debate uh, within the UN about how to assist uh, Afghanistan. Uh, so now the, the interim Taliban government have promised much to the international community, but continue of, to significantly under-deliver, under particularly in matters of uh, political inclusion, religious tolerance, and the rights of women. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, it's questionable whether they are peace-loving. Um, at the same time, as I mentioned earlier in my introduction to the podcast, Afghanistan faces a complex and interconnected set of political, security, economic, energy, and humanitarian crises. What sorts of challenges do international donors face in dealing, working, or relying on the Taliban? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of countries, um, including neighboring countries that actually were looking forward to a peaceful Afghanistan in which they could invest, <laughs> um, they were hoping that the Taliban would create a very different uh, interim government or a very different government full stop, a government that had a lot fewer people on UN sanctions lists, um, you know, more ethnic diversity, more religious minorities like the Hazara Shia, which would sort of uh, be a concern for Iran. Um, and even uh, neighboring countries wanted to see perhaps some figures from older Afghan regimes, like former President Hamid Karzai or former Chief Executive Abdullah Abdullah, um, to sort of move towards national reconciliation. But but that didn't happen. Um, you know, I think a lot of countries thought that they could steer the Taliban towards a more inclusive government. You know, with promises of engagement, and recognition, or aid, or infrastructure development, and so far, so on. But but that hasn't happened yet. Um, the, the Taliban's interim government includes no women. <laughs> it in includes only a token few sort of ethnic minority members, all of whom are strong Taliban supporters already. Um, and, and moreover, and this is really important, even within the Taliban group that forms the interim government, there's a, there's a hierarchy. Basically, hardliners from what we call the Taliban's sort of military wing on top and then moderates from what we call the political wing, if you will, as uh, subordinates. So a hardliner like Sirajuddin Haqqani or Mullah Yaqub, um, they run key ministries. They control the police and, and the army. <laughs> um, but moderates like Mullah Baradar, for instance, um, are, are merely deputies. Baradar is a deputy prime minister. Okay, so that type of interim government, which really prioritizes hardliners over 
um, moderates, um, and then further excludes um, women entirely and, and other ethnic groups is very concerning um, because what we see is really a prioritization of hardline domestic issues over international recognition. So that leverage, that, that pressure hasn't worked. Um, and we, we think that this is happening because um, the Taliban are trying to outflank even harder line groups <laughs> like the Islamic State. And so in order to make sure that they're not called soft um, and therefore push some to defect to a harder line group, they're choosing hardliners instead. And But that creates problems um, for the international community because they have to deal not just with the Taliban government, but a hardline Taliban government. I think the Taliban probably calculated uh, that even if they prioritize these hardliners, uh, the, inter- the donors, the international community, is just going to have to engage with them uh, to avoid this humanitarian crisis, to avoid these energy problems, these sort of food and medicines problems that we're seeing in Afghanistan. Um, Apparently, the EU has already made plans to maybe reopen its office in Kabul precisely for this reason, right? We have to engage, even with hardliners, because of the humanitarian crisis. Um, But for the most part, I think the international community is still trying to take a slow road, so no recognition without some moderation. But it hasn't hasn't worked so far. The the U.S. Treasury actually relaxed its... um, its rules on its own sanctions so that donors could pay fees or import duties to to send food into Afghanistan or medicines and so on without breaking the sanctions um, against certain figures. Um, So humanitarian aid isn't impossible, um, but, you know, even if the international community can, if you say, work with the Taliban, you know, relying on them uh, is, is another, is another matter. You know, we, in the 90s, humanitarian organizations worked with the Taliban, but every step had to be negotiated at the local level. Um, and because local commanders um, were fickle and, and they had to make sure that those local relationships worked. I think that's the pattern we'll see again. Thank you so much for that detailed uh, outline there of the complexities uh, of, I guess, dealing, working with the Taliban. Um, For my final question, uh, you've kind of touched on this already, which was, what's the view from Pakistan? Um, So currently, um, you you talked about the uh, increasing attacks of the TTP against the government um, and the way in which they've teamed up with Baloch nationalists. Um, So currently, the Pakistan government is uh, is in negotiations with the Tehriki Taliban Pakistan. And at the same time, we also see an emboldened Tehriki Labbaik Pakistan creating tremendous unrest across major city centers across the country. Has Pakistan's support for the Taliban altered dynamics between the Pakistani state and militant groups? Has it had an impact on the psychology of far-right religious groups? Or is it uh, too early to tell? I think it's still really early. I mean, you've mentioned two really important groups, one called the Tariqi Taliban Pakistan, which is basically the Pakistan Taliban. Um, and the other is this group called Tariqi Labayak, um, which is sort of um, another branch of Sunni Islam in, in Pakistan, uh, focused on what we call the Burelbi branch. So what we really see in, in your question is Pakistan's response to an intra-Sunni um, rivalry. Um, so basically, um, you know, both of these two groups 
are, are Sunni groups. They both follow in Sunni Islam what we call the Hanafi school of thinking. But apart from this, they have very different ideas about certain things. Uh, the the Deobandi Taliban and the Brelvi um, Tariqi Labayek have very different ideas about things like Sufi shrines um, and, and things like uh, what the Brelvis call the exceptional or supernatural powers of the Prophet Muhammad. Basically, the Brelvis um, like shrines, and the Deobandis usually don't. <laughs> um, and, and beyond this, the Borelvis have been especially eager um, to defend what they um, call the honor of the prophet. Um, and, and they're vigorous defenders of anti-blasphemy laws in, the, in that sense. In fact, they want, they want global hate speech laws to protect uh, not just vulnerable humans, but actually their own religious beliefs, um, which would be a big change for hate speech laws. Um, now, the Taliban are rising in Afghanistan. And, and from an intra-Sunni competitive perspective, um, it makes sense that the Brelvi, uh, Tariqi Labayek, might make a play to show their relevance, right? Because in Pakistan, this Deobandi versus Brelvi rivalry is a big deal. And if the Deobandis through the Taliban are really making a, a splash, uh, then it makes sense for the Brelvis to show that they also have influence too. And I think that's part of what we're seeing now. Um, but you mentioned the, the current negotiations uh, in Pakistan. The Pakistan government under Imran Khan, Prime Minister Imran Khan, says it's negotiating with, with both of these groups, the Pakistan Taliban and this, this Tariqi Labayak. Um, and Imran Khan believes he can negotiate, he can conciliate um, both of these, these two groups. Uh, now, people in Pakistan, many of whom recall countless acts of murder and vigilante terrorism, um, they're understandably outraged by this idea. Um, but so far, Imran Khan has just dismissed their concerns. He thinks that this old phrase, you know, we refuse to negotiate with terrorists, um, he just doesn't think that's relevant anymore. Um, now, I don't think Pakistan's uh, longstanding support for the Afghan Taliban, um, note, Pakistan's support for the Afghan Taliban, not Pakistan's support for the anti-Pakistan, Pakistan Taliban. Um, it's confusing. Um, but I don't think that Pakistan's, you know, relationship with the Afghan Taliban has, has changed its relationship with militants. You know, what we see in Pakistan, um, and especially on the military side, is I think a, a tolerance for militant risk, <laughs> basically allies who go rogue, uh, that other states would just describe as completely unacceptable. Um, but in Pakistan, the state's tolerance for violence and, and even betrayal seems extremely high to, to outsiders. Um, now, both politicians and especially military leaders in, in Pakistan, um, they are routinely providing various forms of impunity to, to violent actors uh, in exchange for what they see as the domestic or foreign policy benefits that those militants are able to extract. Right. So they give the militants some space and the militants give them some leverage. Um, and there's a lot of violence that comes with that. But the tolerance for that violence um, for mo most of us looks <laughs> unacceptable. But but the, the cost benefit analysis in Pakistan somehow seems very different. This isn't unique to Pakistan. Right. Lots of countries have politicians who use sort of informal violence to get what they want um, politically. But in Pakistan, it's just so much easier to see it. <laughs> Um, and, um, if you will, so much more carefully studied. Now, will the state manage to control all of this, um, either on the Taliban side or on the Tariqi Labayak side? Uh, it looks really risky to me. 
Um, I think this escalating intra-Sunni competition is really dangerous. But, um, you know, Pakistan has suffered a lot of violence in the past, and I think that's probably going to continue. Thank you so much for that. Um, I think we've uh, reached the end of our schedule. So I'd like to thank uh, Professor Matthew. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. You're listening to South Asia Chat. If you wish to learn more about our work, please visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg. Thank you.